Hey everybody, welcome to the Pursue God podcast. I'm Brian Dwyer, joined in the studio today by Peter DeTori and Zach Johnson. And guys, today you're going to be joining me for the next several weeks in the studio because we're talking about how to be anxious like a man, right? And I mean, the truth is men, men don't like admitting that they're anxious. And there are three of us in here. We've dealt with anxiety, but I think all three of us, we've dealt with it recently. Um, it's not something we really grew up with, and we'll be talking about that more and more. It's not something that we that we at least recognize we dealt with in our younger years. But in the last several years, all three of us have experienced panic attacks, anxiety that made it made us feel like we were about to die, and it freaked us all out. We found each other. We've been discovering some principles together about this, biblically, medically. Uh, mentally in so many ways. And and that's why we decided to come together and, and get in the studio and talk about this, because we want men to have the freedom that we're experiencing from anxiety and panic attacks. And it's not going to come about if you're not willing to talk about it. So we're modeling this, that we're talking about it. And we hope for the guys who are out there listening to this, we hope that you'll get with a mentor or with a men's group and go through this multi-part series on anxiety and manhood. And we want to encourage you that you can have victory over it. Okay, so today, one of the things we're going to do, guys, is we're going to share our stories. We want people to hear our stories. It'll give context to the conversations we're having in the weeks ahead. But before we even get into that, let's just answer this question. Why can't men admit being anxious? Why is this something that women do better than men? And as we put our feeble minds together, guys, we came up with five reasons. And let's start with that, and then let's share our stories. So, Zach, the first reason that men can't admit being anxious is because they think it makes them look weak. Yeah, absolutely. I think as as men in general, uh, the majority of us are probably fairly prideful. And um, with pride, you know, we have a sense of pride in that we are strong individuals, that, that we can lead our families, that we can lead our organizations, that we are people who um, folks can follow and we can encourage folks. And if we show weakness in being anxious or, or being panicky, that our family is not going to follow us, that we're not leading our family in a, in a good way, that we're not leading our company or organization in a good way. Um, although, uh, you know, in, in my relationship with my wife, uh, the, the one thing that she has said as I've shared this with her, um, because the first thing that came to my mind was, uh, babe, I apologize that I'm going through this right now. Um, because I know that it, it makes me look very weak and I feel very weak. And she said, Zach, I, I want you to understand that you sharing this with me and, and me knowing that you're going through this, um, in my eyes and in my heart makes you look stronger and it, and it makes you more relatable because I didn't think that you had a quote unquote weakness, right? Or I didn't think that you were quote unquote relatable. And so... Um, I, I think, uh, you know, as, as I've processed it, um, talking through um, that in my, in my heart, in my mind with other people, um, that I feel like it's weak, it, it, really, it really has opened up a lot of good conversations. And people don't truly see it as weak because it's very, very common, especially in men like us. Yeah, and really, the way, even how you admitted that right there, that, that it's it's the sin of pride at the root of that, isn't it? That yeah. we, and I think not that women can't have the sin of pride, but I think men tend to struggle with that sin more. I know way more men that would hesitate to ever admit their anxiety because of pride than women. Women, my wife, my daughter, they freely admit that they struggle with anxiety. And up until a few years ago, I didn't really fully understand what that was about. And I think they didn't really even understand me how could I not experience this, right? So really, it's a, I think that first reason is it's pride, is we're too, we're too proud to admit that we're anxious. We're too pr- we think we, we want to be in control, and anxiety makes us feel like we're not in control, right? Yeah, Zach, when you shared that with us the first time about your wife and what she said to you um, after you brought that struggle to her, I thought to myself, 
men need to hear that because society tells us something different. Society says you can't show your weakness. You can't show that you have emotions. You can't show that you, you really feel a certain way opposite from what society says we should feel, which is strong. We should be in control. We should know how to solve every problem. And I think with anxiety, uh, you're really left standing like, I don't know what's going on here. How am I going to solve this? What am I going to do? And you really do feel weak. And so it just goes against everything we see in society and what's around us. And so when you shared that with us a few weeks ago about what your wife had said, I, I remember leaving and driving home that day saying, man, men need to hear that. They need a partner that's going to say, no, your, your weakness makes you strong um, because weakness is just vulnerability. Hmm. All right. So Peter, let's stay on that, the wife topic. That'll be number two. The second reason, and, and Zach already admitted it, but really it's an extension of it makes me look weak. For, for married men, for ma many married men, the last person they want to look weak in front of is their wife, right? So another lie of the enemy is you're going to lose the respect of your wife if you're vulnerable with her, if you, if you admit that you're anxious, if you admit uh, that you don't have it all together. Did you experience that with your wife as well? I did, and it was a, it was a false truth, um, but I convinced myself that it was real. And so for... For a long time, I struggled with the anxiety on my own. I, I buried it. I hid it. Just let her know something else was going on. Work is hard. Just stressed out. Just kind of just explained it away. Um, and then when I really hit rock bottom, uh, my wife was really my saving grace. Uh, being vulnerable with her, um, I think Brene Brown calls it a like, sliding glass moment where the sliding glass door opens and normally men just shut it. And that opened for me and I walked through it. And when I walked through it that day, my wife was my biggest fan. Like she became the person that in a lot of ways has gotten me to where I am today. And it was just by being vulnerable. And again, just like with the first one, it's going to make me weak. We're told that we have to be and act a certain way with our spouses. And I don't know where that certain way came from. Mm. Um, I think if we were to look back in the Bible, I think it's a little different than that certain way. Mm -hmm. And yet we buy into the belief that that certain way is the right way. Peter, uh, Peter do you think that your wife knew before you, you outwardly spoke to her about it? I do. I think she's tremendously perceptive. And so I think she, she knew that, that something was going on, and like amazing wives do all the time, they just want to give us the space to, to be vulnerable and come forward, and oftentimes we fumble that. We, we just don't make it happen. But for me, it was, it was the turning point. And I would completely agree. I think, I think my wife um, could see it in me and would even hint at it in conversation. Um, because it's something that um, throughout certain aspects of her life she struggled with, and so she knows what some of those those signs are. But she did give me the freedom and the space um, to kind of figure out on my own <laughs> that I was going through it. But also when I did openly admit it to her, she was the first one, and and throughout you know from that point forward has been uh, my rock whenever something comes on or I feel something coming on or I know where my head's at, um, she's, she's the only person who can immediately calm me down. Sure. Would you say that, it, that your anxiety and your resulting vulnerability with your wife, would you say that it's helped your marriage or hurt your marriage? Because probably some guys are listening to that might need a little convincing still. It's definitely helped me. Um, you know, she's my best friend, but it's just, it's a closer level of intimacy, I think, than I've ever experienced with another human being. Um, she, she just unconditionally is there for me. There's no strings attached. Um, she will drop everything if I'm struggling with something. And it's just allowed us to talk more. And so I think prior to being vulnerable, we would have those periods of time where we would just coexist. We would just we were both busy. We both did our share, fair share. We came together every once in a while, but there really that solid connection wasn't there.
But then when we started to be vulnerable, when I, when I started to be vulnerable, um, the connection just became so much deeper. Yeah, I would, I would completely agree. I, and when I look at my wife and I, um, I would, I would describe myself as a very logical individual, black and white thinker. And I would describe my wife as, um, wear it on your sleeve type of emotional gal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're very opposite in that regard. But since we, since I have opened up, you know, you just, you just said coexisting. My wife describes it as two planes flying in, in uh, two completely different directions passing in the night. And she is very open and honest about when she feels that way. Whereas I um, am not in touch enough or I'm so naive that I don't really know that we're not that way. Right. And so um, it it has definitely brought us to a different level of um, proximity and closeness and intimacy um, and, and just general relationship. Okay. So I can hear the guy out there who's saying, man, I wish I had a wife like you guys. Uh, I wish my wife was as understanding because I'm sure there's some guys who are out there saying, I'm, I've been bottling this up. <clears throat> I feel anxious. Maybe they've even had some panic attacks. We'll get into all this. But they, their thought is that their wife wouldn't be supportive of them. I don't know if you guys have some wisdom for a guy like that. I think, it's, I think that's, that's Satan telling lies. I think it's, uh, you know, I, I think as human beings, we have compassion for total strangers. And so to think that the person you're walking this life with isn't going to stop for a second in your darkest moment and say, I'm here, let me listen. I think Satan's whispering some lies, and and I think some prayer might get us through that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would even challenge the guy that maybe that's part of the problem is that you're not vulnerable. Maybe the reason you feel the distance, maybe the reason you feel like there's a wall, a barrier between you is because for the last 10, 20, 30 years, however long you've been married, that you've been building the wall. In my years of ministry, usually, I notice usually the men are the ones who build the the emotional walls, not the women. Well, again, if if, if that wall's been built up, maybe Maybe this, you know, Paul called it a thorn in the flesh. Maybe this thorn in your flesh is going to be just the thing that saves your marriage. It, maybe it doesn't just save you emotionally. Just being able to admit your weakness, you know, Zach, like you said, when you were talking about weakness and admitting weakness, it, it made me think about Paul in the, in the Bible where he said, when, I'm, when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. And so he, I think he understood the, the secret the kind of the irony of the way this kind of thing tends to work is that this could be the thing that brings more intimacy, more love, more more closeness in your marriage, and and you'll never know if you don't admit it to your wife, if you don't let her in, and it, it really will take a new kind of interacting with your wife. Anyway, we'll talk. Maybe we'll talk more about this because I think this one is more, important. One more quick thing, Brian. I I mean. Not, I think I know that as men, we are very selfish individuals. Mm. And so when we look at ourselves and where we're at, and we look at our wife um, and, and bringing this up to her and thinking that she might, she might um, give us the hand, if you will, or put up the stop sign or tell us to buck up, that's all about us, right? None of that is about her. And, and I think men out there understanding that if you're struggling with this and if you haven't spoken to your wife about this, I think you're probably going to find out that there's so much more benefit to her as well Hmm. and not just about you. That's good. That's good. All right, number three. The third reason that men can't admit being anxious has to do with losing their friends. They think, I'm going to lose my friends. Or maybe even if you're married, we're going to lose our friends, right? If if they know about my struggle struggles with anxiety, they're going to think that that I've lost my mind. You know. Yeah, that was that one hits home for me uh, in a big way. I I tend to be a really outgoing person, uh, make friends really easy, uh, can go into any room with any group of people and and hold my own in conversations. And and I really remember when I started to struggle through the anxiety right at the beginning looking around and just wondering who was going to stick around, who was just not going to run and, and just be like, this, this guy's lost his mind. And 
what was pretty amazing was that the 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 five five or six people in my life that were probably closest to me when i did talk with them about it they were so empathetic they were they were just they were all in on me um they made me feel normal they made me feel human um i had dignity and and really i just had to shift my mindset that my anxiety didn't define me i was still the same person I was still their, their friend that they could call, that they could hang out and watch a football game with, that could say funny things. Like, I was still that guy, but I just had the struggle. And by letting them into the struggle, I think I just became more human. They become more human. And I look back on it now, and I think those friendships are actually stronger today. And so, again, I think it was just the false truth that we, we try to convince ourselves that we're, we're going to lose something by, by trying to deal with something. Yeah, I, I I totally agree, and and I would tell you that since this has been made apparent to me that this is something that um, I'm currently struggling with, um, my relationships with my friends and family have gotten stronger because um, for the longest time it was get up, be with your family, go to work come home, be with your family, go to sleep and just rinse and repeat. Right. And now I take every ad advantage I can on the drive to and from work or on a Saturday morning when I'm up to reach out and, and just connect with people. And that's been, that's been part of the healing process mm -hmm. and part of the strengthening process. And not only connect with, with people, but share what, um, you know, where my head's been and what I've been struggling with. Um, and so my desire to connect with my friends um, has grown through that. Instead of just being a lone soldier, burying my head in the ground, and working through life. Yeah, and I, you know, I think. We're, spoiler alert: We're going to be talking about this later on in the series when we're we're talking about solutions. But uh, this is a solution, and people can start working on this now. Connection is a major part of the solution. Zach, it's really struck me how, even more than in my story, you you have drawn closer to people through this. I think for some people, their instinct is to pull away more. But I'm, I'm telling you, if you pull away more, it's going to make it harder. You're going to be more anxious, not less anxious. Somebody said just this week to me, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. And I think the same really can be said for anxiety. The, the opposite of anxiety is in some ways it's connection. It's being being willing to connect with people. Galatians 6 says that as Christians, we should bear each other's burdens. Now, the context for that verse is sounds like it's talking about sin, and, and anxiety is not a sin. People need to know that. Being anxious isn't a sin. The enemy might try to tell you it is. But I think stay I think staying in the state of anxiety is a sin because because Paul says in Philippians 4 he said you know don't be anxious about anything the verb tense there is talking about remaining in anxiety like being persistently anxious and so and i think on top of that then is not dealing with your anxiety can turn into sin you know it can turn into addiction i i know i know guys who turn to drinking because of their anxiety, or they couldn't sleep because of their anxiety, and they would ha start having drinks at night, and, and pretty soon now they're dealing with an addiction on top of the anxiety. But at the root of that thing is this thing that they're not dealing with, the thing that they're not being honest about. So we'll talk about that more in, in later episodes in the series. The, the fourth, we're on number four, the fourth reason that guys struggle to admit that they're anxious is because of their workplace. And again, this isn't just for men, but let's talk about this because I know there are some men listening to that, this saying, I'm going to lose my credibility with my coworkers if I admit my struggle or with my boss. Or maybe I might even lose my job if I admit my struggles, that people know that I'm struggling with anxiety. I'm, people might say, well, let's not put that guy up for the next promotion, right? Is that a thing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, Throughout, throughout this process, um, it's been made very clear to me that um, I've, for the last 15, 16 years, basically made work my God. And so one of my biggest fears when all this came up 
um, was not being confident in the workplace, not being the leader that I should be, not being um, the individual that somebody can follow, right? And not be the one carrying the torch out front. And if I were to be open and honest about what I was going through, thinking all of that that has defined me for the past 16 years is going to be stripped away because um, I'm, I'm a shell of a person from what I was at for the last 16 years at work. But to be honest with you, it has given me eyes to see and ears to hear people at work now and to be empathetic to people at work, to be more of a leader at work because previously I probably saw, saw them as um, an individual who works with the company up here and we're there to get a job done, right? Let's put our heads down and let's get it done. But now I see that they have families. I see that they have children. I see that they're struggling. I see that we, this deadline driven industry that we work in grinds on you and I can see the anxiety on their face now. Whereas previously, um, I would have just said they were tired. Let's buck up. Let's get it done. And then we can go home. Um, I just have so much more empathy now. And I feel like I'm now a stronger leader because of it. Yeah. I think the stronger leader thing, I can totally just totally hear that. In my story, you'll hear a little bit about, I, I ended up being out of work for a while. And when I left work, I was the man. I was the guy in charge. Everything ran through me, and six weeks later, I walked back into work. Uh, it was a Thursday, and I was scared out of my mind, and I'll never forget walking back in. Everyone was looking at me. I felt like I was floating. It was just this out-of-body experience, and the owner of our company just said to me, like, you've been through a lot, and we're just going to bring you on back slowly. Everything I was doing prior to me being out was stripped away from me. My title, my job responsibilities. I didn't lose my pay, um, but he just basically said, we're going to reteach you to do some things because while you were out, we realized the company has some, some holes. And so it was a super vulnerable place that I had to step back into because I, I basically ended up going back and being a field manager. I was basically managing our new construction job sites. So I went from being the guy making the decisions to being the guy in the truck, calling the trades, getting them out there and building it, dealing with the clients, writing daily logs. Like it was, it was a job that I hire people for. And I remember one day just telling my wife, like, I don't know if I can do this. And she said, you absolutely can do this. And I said, no, like, I'm, I'm the guy. Like, what happened? Like, how did this anxiety and this event in my life end me, you know, put me here? And she just said, we don't have the answer to that yet, but you can do it. And so I did. And in the end, um, you know, it's been about a year now. And looking back at it, I have more respect for everybody in that room. And they have more respect for me. And the reality is, is that everybody saw me be the guy that was in charge and then have to come back and be the guy on the ground. And I did it without complaint. I did it well. I did it, I did it every day. I was consistent. Um, it was the hardest professional thing that I had ever done. And I'm back to where I am today because of the humility that I was able to show in that, that time. So what I would say to someone who's maybe saying there's no way I can show this vulnerability at work, I, I would I would just challenge you that that there's probably someone there that you can share it with. There's probably a place to start. And and we don't have all of the answers. And I think as humans, we want them. We want to we wanna know the plan before the plan happens. And we know that only one person knows the plan. And so professionally, that was probably the hardest part of my career. And it dealt directly with anxiety. Well, I'm glad you shared that, Peter, because we don't want to sell people a bill of goods. We don't want to say, oh, no, share, be honest with people right. at work, and it's not going to affect anything. For you, it did affect stuff. Yeah. Zach, for you, it didn't. For you, it was, you're, I mean, you're still managing that. You've had to draw some lines with some of your clients. You've had to just say, I need to, I need to say no. I need to create some boundaries here. It hasn't cost you anything at this point. But the reality is guys listening to this need to know if you're at the point where your back is against the wall and you don't do something to change your situation, 
losing your job is the least of your worries or be, or being demoted or whatever having a job a career change is really the least right peter that's part of your story is you you had no choice right absolutely and some yep. guys are like that listening to this right now maybe that's even creating some panic in you right now listening to this trust me we get it you have no choice when i hit when i had started having my panic panic attacks a few years ago i had no choice i didn't I really didn't have a choice in the matter. I had to deal with that right now, and I needed some time to deal with that. I think all three of us have experienced that. Yeah. And so the reality is, for some guys, you just need to say, look, God's got it, and w- what, you know, whatever ends up happening is going to be for your good. Yeah, and this might sound crazy to people listening out there, but I, and, and Zach, you, you, you weigh in on this as well. You might agree, but I think... I think the anxiety when you make the choice to deal with it, there's not much that is sacred at that point. Like if at the end of the day, my job was not going to be healthy for me for the rest of my life, I would have made a decision to do something different. And I I think that that's a crazy statement if you're listening and saying, wait a minute, I'm just kind of a little anxious. Now you're telling me I need a career change. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that when it got to where it was for me, as serious as it was, as I started to unpack it, if it came down to that, that would have been a no-brainer for me. I would have made the decision to to do something different. 100%. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the different types of anxiety, but the three of us all feeling that um, or having felt that panic anxiety you know, the fears that go through your mind at that point are heart attack, are I'm, I need to go to the hospital, or I can't breathe, right? I'm suffocating. And nothing is worth feeling that way, right? And and I I was absolutely at that point where changes had to be made, boundaries had to be created. And um, ultimately, I had to get to the point where it was just a job. You go to it, you know, there's there's ministry in it and there's relationship in it. But in my mind, I had to, to just tell myself and I, and I've told, um, you know, I've told, um, folks that I work with and told clients that I work with, this is a job, right? And, um, my, my family, my relationships, uh, my life is more important than, than this job. And for the longest time it wasn't. Yeah, a good friend of mine was a was an executive in the medical industry, and it he he was experiencing anxiety and depression, and it finally brought him and his wife to a point where they just said, "Our lifestyle is not worth this. Maintaining our lifestyle, this kind of income that we're making, is not it's not worth it." Right? At some point, you have to kind of draw a line in the sand and say there are more important things than how much money I make or what title I have. And he he quit his job. He quit his job, took a position at, a, at another company. And for some people, again, maybe that as you're working through this series, maybe it'll become evident to you that there needs to be a change. Because again, spoiler alert, one of the things that we're going to tell you is a solution is you you have to slow down. If you don't slow down, if you're experiencing anxiety, especially panic anxiety, if you don't slow down, this is, this is my experience, then you're not going to be alive very much longer. <laughs> I don't think I could have survived if I didn't make some real lifestyle changes and we'll get into that in just a couple of weeks okay so guys we've covered four of the five so why why men can't admit being anxious number one it makes them look weak number two they'll lose the respect of their wife these are all lies by the way right number three number three i'll lose my friends if they know about it number four i'll lose my credibility with my coworkers if they know about it. okay so that's all of those are lies we we can all attest to it but this, this fifth one is one that Christians in particular might have at the back of their mind, is they say, it, I feel like I'm not a Christian if I'm dealing with anxiety. It feels like it, it makes me question even my salvation if I'm, if I'm dealing with anxiety at this level. I must not be a very good Christian. Yeah, Brian, you mentioned it earlier, earlier in this podcast, and there were nights multiple nights where me or my wife would just lay in bed and we would recite Philippians 4, right? Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, mm-hmm. but in everything, uh, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And that first statement of, 
do not be anxious about anything, I sit there and think, but I'm anxious about everything. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, so do I not, do I not really have faith? Do I, um, do I not believe and trust in Jesus? And so, yeah, absolutely. Those thoughts go through your head when you're uptight and your, your chest is tight. You feel like you got a rubber band around it. You can't go to sleep. Your mind doesn't stop. Um, but the one thing that, that I learned, um, after I got through that, you know, do not be anxious because I'm, I'm not a believer was I'm growing through this. I'm growing closer to God and I'm growing closer to Jesus. And some of these things that he's making aware to me that are probably causing some anxiety are because I'm growing closer to him because he's making things aware to me that need to change. He's making things aware to me, um, that are, um, calluses that have been built up in my heart and things that um, I have incorporated into my life that, that need to change. And sometimes I think, you know, I have, I have a good friend who, um, who struggled with anxiety at the early stages of his life um, in, his, in his early 20s. And, and I've been speaking to him a lot about this. And he said, Zach, you should be thankful for this because God's showing you a lot. And it sounds like you're growing a lot through this. And that perspective, that, that, that switch that's flipped it, of I feel the weight of the world on my shoulders because, uh, because of all these things and I feel anxious is now be thankful. And, and I, I've come up with this one saying, lean in. Lean in to the anxiousness. Mm-hmm. Lean in to what's going on in your heart and in your mind and, and almost embrace it because God's, God's doing something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember a few years ago having what I would what I would describe as existential dread like I I started to think about my death mm-hmm. I started to think about dying and not just what it would do to my wife and kids but just even me and my eternity and having to face God and meet God someday and I mean again to my shame I that was really hard for me to deal with as a pastor right I'm a pastor I'm like hey look I know where I'm going I've I've trusted Christ for self. I know what Scripture says about it, but but f- even for me, that was a real testing moment for me, testing my salvation. And it makes me think about, you know, the armor of God that we read about in Ephesians chapter six. Because we've already mentioned this, guys, but this is a in some to some degree, this is a spiritual issue. This is a spiritual attack that people are experiencing, and in spiritual warfare goes on in the mind. That's where that's where the battle takes place. And so for anyone listening to this who feels like you're struggling with anxiety, you need to know it's a spiritual battle and you need to win the battle in your mind, right? That you need to identify these lies about why why you're not admitting it and being vulnerable to the people in your world about it. You need to identify these lies and then you need to now act on the truth and recognize that that you can be honest about this, and it's God's going to use it for His good. It's not going to make you look bad. It's going to actually make God look good. It's going to glorify Him in your life. But but just know this: that Satan is an accuser. Revelation twelve talks about this: that he's an accuser. He stands before the throne of God, accusing us, accusing Christians, kind of like what he did for Job in the book of Job. He said Job's only a Christian because he's got it all together right now, and his life is going great. But if you let this stuff happened in his life, then he's going to turn his back on you. And, I, and that's why Paul says in Ephesians 6 to put on the helmet of salvation, because what a helmet protects your mind. And, and another passage in the Bible, in Thessalonians, Paul clarifies that he's talking about the helmet of the confidence of your salvation. So I want to just speak to the Christian men out there. If you've trusted Jesus for salvation, you are a follower of God. Do not let the enemy fool you into thinking that your anxiety means that you're not a Christian. Now, if you're listening to this and you're not a Christian, or you don't even know what that means, what I'm talking about, make sure to talk about this with your men's group this week. Talk about it this week. Talk about it with a mentor this week. Hey, I want to become a Christian. How do I become a Christian? Because the truth is, guys, none none of the stuff that we're going to share is going to hold any water for someone who doesn't have Christ at the center of their life. Christ, Jesus is the answer, spoiler alert again, he's the answer to all of our anxiety problems, and people are going to hear that when we share our stories. So let's do that. All right, so we somehow, guys, we've overcome these five reasons men can't admit it. 
Um, and, and we're going to model it now for the rest of the, our time together in this episode. We just want to be honest about our stories. We want to kind of pull the curtain back a little bit for us. Now, I know we don't know most of the guys listening to this, but I would encourage you to everyone listening to take a cue from what we're doing and just to be honest about it and be willing to talk about it. So let's do it now. Peter, why don't you start? Yeah, so my, my real battle with anxiety was probably going on my whole life at a subconscious level. Um, it never reached the point that it did in 2021. So in 2021, um, in July, we had just gone on a little family vacation, come back. I was mowing the lawn, and I, I felt like I was having a heart attack. I had no energy. I had just this weird feeling in my chest. I was sweating, and, and it was just, I was super scared, really scared about what was going on. But being prideful, um, I just got a glass of water and, you know, just hit it. Didn't even tell, um, didn't even tell Tyra at that time and, and just kind of went on with the day. That evening, I, I did finally open up and just say, hey, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm, I got some pain in my chest. It's in my back. I can't figure out what's going on. We just prayed about it. We just stayed together, went for a walk went to bed that night, got up on Monday morning, just like I always do, ready to go back to work. And I just had this in this experience. I was getting my coffee in the morning, and I remember the guy talking to me, but I couldn't really feel like I was there. And at that moment, I was like, I have to go to the hospital. Something's going on. So I went to the hospital, and they ran all kinds of tests. And I was sure that I was having a heart attack at this point. I was working a really stressful job. My my stress level at this time was, was off the charts. Um, and Thankfully, they come in and tell me I'm not having a heart attack, but what they did tell me was that my right lung had collapsed. And so that might sound crazy because it was crazy to me because I just didn't think lungs just collapse, but apparently they do. So they kept me overnight. The next morning, it was getting worse. So they had to tube me. Um, next day, they send me home. They're, they're like, you'll be fine. And so it just didn't sit right with me. The whole thing just didn't sit right with me. I'm like, well, why does your lung just collapse? What's going on? I know everyone at the medical think this is normal. Nothing felt normal. We went home, and right away, there was no way I could function. Like, as soon as we walked in the door from the hospital, I was a mess. I wanted to go right back to the hospital. I wanted to be hooked up to the machines. I wanted to watch my heart rate. I wanted to know what my oxygen level was. Like, I have just, at this point, entered a world that I had never been in. Like, I was just I, I, I was just as scared as I could be. And so at that time, I just did a lot of praying, a lot of walking. Um, I mean, we—I I remember Tyra and I just, just walking and car rides. Car rides were the other thing. We'd get in the car, and she would just drive me around, and, and that would really calm my anxiety. It was the craziest thing. I remember one day, two or three days out of the hospital— we drove like four and a half hours. We were like, we could have been in St. George, and we were still in Logan, Utah. <laughs> and so it was just the craziest thing, and I couldn't make any sense of it. And then each day it got a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better, and a week goes by, and I'm going in for my follow-up exam, and the doctor just sees me. He says, you look great. Everything's fine. And I'm like, okay. And uh, again, Tyra, my my angel there, she says, I think we should just do a chest x-ray because he was super anxious this week, and I think we'll feel better if we do. So the doc said he didn't think he needed one, but they did it anyway. So we got it, and at this point, the plan was I was going back to work the next day, and so we were walking to the car after the x-ray, and I just said to Tyra, I said, let's go get lunch and let's go for a walk because this the last seven days have just been a nightmare. Let's just, let's just look back on it and... Um, I'm looking forward to getting back to work and just getting back to normal. I remember getting back to normal, and that, that's going to be another what is normal, right? And so I remember we went up to Preston, Idaho, because we live near the border, and there's a place called Immigration Canyon. We went for a walk, and I couldn't breathe. And Tyra's like, well, the doctor said you're going to have some, some movement of tissue because I, I did have a chest tube in me, and they had to go through my rib cage. And it, something wasn't right. It was weird. But I just believed her and said, yeah, he did say that. So we kept walking, and then we ended up driving back down to Preston. As soon as we got back into cell service, I had seven missed calls um, from McCade, which is the, the hospital down in Ogden. They were from the cardiac unit, and they basically were telling me I needed to get down there as soon as possible because my lung had collapsed again. 
And so at this point, I just went from seven days of just being scared out of my mind to the doctor telling me I was okay, to Tyra convincing him to get me an x-ray, and then to find out that my lung had collapsed. And so I called down there, and they put me through to a thoracic surgeon, and he just said, I need you to get down here. We got to talk about what we're going to do. And two, two days later, I was having major surgery um, on my right lung. And so um, scary, like scariest time of my life. Like I just, I didn't think I was going to live. Um, mentally, I just, I was, I was having a breakdown. Like it just, everything that was normal to me was no longer a reality. And so I just... I just got to a point where the only thing I had to grasp onto was Tyra, God, and just trust. And so I, I went in that Thursday morning, had the surgery Friday. Um, everything looked great. They were ready to send me home. And I remember one of the nurses came in, and she noticed that my machine was not beeping. Well they had had it on silent probably because Tyra said he's anxious and doesn't want to hear the, the stuff. And so this nurse turned it back on and all of a sudden it starts beeping it starts going crazy. I start going nuts. Mm. All of a sudden I'm sitting in a hospital bed. My heart rate's like 165 beats a minute. They come rushing in with an EKG machine. Like, I'm just like, what is going on? And they weren't, they're not going to let us leave at this point. And we can't, we can't get my heart rate down. Um, and so finally we did some stuff, and about three hours later we were able to go home. And then as soon as we got home, I wanted to be back at the hospital. And then that became my life for about the next 30 days. And then it stretched on to another six months where everything that was normal for me was no longer normal. Like I would walk in a room. I felt like I had a glazed look on my face. Um, I, I just... Everything was slower than it was prior to this happening. Uh, I realized I had to, I had to just start to see the world differently than I did before this. I, I mean, it was just this abrupt thing. Like literally on July 16th, I'm playing a nice golf course in Las Vegas, hitting a ball onto an island green and laughing and joking. And the next day, I'm in the hospital with a collapsed lung. Hmm. And I hadn't been in a car wreck or an airplane crash or I hadn't got punched in the ribs. It just was what they called a spontaneous pneumothorax, which is as the lung collapses. And so I knew quickly that something was wrong. And, and the, the, the thing that really hit home for me was I just kept putting myself into a place where I was never going to be the same again. Like, I was broken now. Um, I'm never going to be able to do the things I used to do because I'm broken. And so that's where my wife really started to lay the groundwork for what was really going to become, you know, 12 months of anxiety work dealing with where I, where I was. And she said to me, um, she just said, you keep asking, when are you going to feel normal? And I guess the question I have for you is, what is normal? And I remember just sitting with that for a second, and she just, she just kind of laid into me, just sternly said, what, what was normal? Was normal coming home from work at 9 o'clock every night? And then going to the gym, and then coming home and spending five minutes with me before you go to bed. Was normal taking on all the stress that you had at work and trying to solve everybody's problems? Was normal being a super, superman every single day of your life? Is that the normal that you really want to spend the next 35 years on? And I mean, she was stern. And, and I remember she walked away and just left me in the room with my own thoughts. Mm. And, uh, and I just realized she knew exactly what she was talking about. Mm. Because however I ended up on my back that day, and however that all happened to me, it happened to me for a reason. And had it not happened, I was probably on a, on a one-way ticket upstairs. And so what had to happen at that point was just a complete shift of how I viewed the world, how I viewed Jesus, how I viewed my wife, how I viewed my kids, how I viewed work, 
how I viewed my own health, um, how I viewed relationships. And so my wife found a book out there. It was called Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, and it was written by a doctor named Carolyn Leaf. And my, my wife just said, I think this book can help us. She read it like in a day, and then she got started listening to a few podcasts, and then all of a sudden I was connecting. I was connecting some dots. And, and really it was probably early September that I started to journal. And boy, did that make a difference because I started to write about what was the root of my anxiety. I got to start dealing with some of the things that I had. I had just, I think Zach said it earlier. He said, you just, you can't, you can't just stuff this stuff. You have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And I had stuffed anxiety um, my whole life. Uh, as a five-year-old kid, I saw my best friend get, get hit by a car in front of me, um, come into play with me. Um, you know, and so... How do you deal with that when you're five, mm -hmm. right? And so through this technique that I was learned, that I learned, I was able to actually go back to that period of my life and and really just deal with it, and and really started to do it with some other big events in my life, and and I'd say probably it took about three or four months before, um, you know, we 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 plan to have friends over the house, and ten minutes before they were coming, I I'd say to Tyra like, why did we do this? Like, I don't think I'm okay. Like, I'm not going to be myself. I'm, what if I pass out? What if, what if something happens to me when they're there? And so we just lived this, this real experience where I had a best friend who checked in with me. I had a, I had a lifeline that I could call when I was having those moments of, of panic or, or just immense um, anxiety. But it didn't solve itself fast enough for me. And I think that's the, that's the one thing in my story I just want to share with everyone. I was super impatient. Like, I, I'm a results guy, so if I, if I make a change, I want to see the results. And I made a change, and I started to write, and I didn't see the results right away. Hmm. Um, but they came. Um, it, it, it came, and it was gradual. Um, and one day, I just woke up, and, and I felt less anxious. And it didn't mean that I wasn't anxious. It just meant that now when those anxious moments came, I had a toolbox to deal with them. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, I hope we're going to, when we dive into some of this stuff a little bit later, we're going to share some of those tools of, of what they are. But I, I, I think looking back on it, I, I, I didn't have any hope. Um, I didn't believe that there was light at the end of the tunnel. Like I, I really had weeks and months where I believed the the reality of what I was living at that moment was truly where I was going to stay the rest of my life. Mm. And um, through the grace of God and the help of a, a loving spouse, um, I can I can proudly say that God's put on my heart that I want to share this story for others to to be encouraged by it, mm -hmm. um, to maybe open the door for them to come and and talk and just give them a platform to to be able to say, hey, I was I was there and and. And you can you can get through this. Yeah, that's the message we want men to to gain after today's episode is now we're just getting started, but you can have victory. You know, here are three guys who are experiencing victory, and, and we don't want to candy coat that. That doesn't mean we, we 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 never get anxious. That doesn't mean we don't have those moments in our day. And we'll we'll be honest about that as we go throughout this series, but really you can have victory because we've had victory. And, and it, like you said, Peter, it's going to take some work and we're, we're going to, in a couple of episodes, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about r real practical stuff that you can begin to do, but it's not, it's not a microwave solution. It doesn't happen in just a couple of minutes. It really is like your wife said, Peter, it really is a commitment to a new way to think about your life. Yeah. yeah. And I experienced the same thing. Zach, your story has some overlaps to it, but but you would say yours more. It came out of the blue, just like Peter's, and it and you would probably use the word panic attack more than Peter even would, huh? Yeah, and um, don't get me wrong, I would have loved to just take a pill and go to sleep, and the next day it all be just completely fixed. But there's nothing out there, <laughs> you know, that 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 does that. So yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities with Peter's story, um, and I. I 
you know, it's crazy. I've, I've talked to my younger brother quite a bit. Who's, who's also struggling, um, with this. And, and when I opened up to him about it, he said, Zach, I, I would have never thought in, um, you know, my whole life that, that you were an anxious individual. I never saw that growing up. I, I never saw that in you. I, I, I thought a stoic, steady, you're not too high, you're not too low. So this, this is a surprise hearing this from you. And I, you know, I grew up, um, in a, in a Midwestern town, hardworking parents, hardworking dad, um, went to college, graduated college, went, uh, moved all over the country for about, f- about 12 years for, um, for work. And, um, just kind of tried to, to grow, um, my, my influence in that, in that job, in that career, in that company. And, um, because I, I didn't have a spouse, didn't, didn't have kids, didn't, um, you know, and could do it had no problem working seven thirty to 10 30, 11 o'clock at night. And that just became the norm for me. Right. And, and it was a way to, um, to kind of climb the ladder, to, to serve clients, to, um, to make an impact. Right. Well, uh, five and a half years ago now, I, um, uh, was, was lucky enough, um, God looked down on me and blessed me with me with an amazing wife. Uh, so got married five and a half years ago, um, who, who at the, the time had a, a 13 year old daughter who I've been very blessed to, um, to adopt and is now, and is now my daughter. And so I became, I went from a, a single, um, workaholic to, uh, a husband and a dad of a 13 year old girl and still tried to be a workaholic. And there was a lot of friction in, in my relationship with my wife, um, at the time. And I realized that some things had to change. So some things changed, but, uh, but then we were also lucky enough, uh, two and a half years ago to, um, through a, through a very long struggle with infertility to, to have a little boy. And, um, I think that probably, as I look back, was probably the beginning of, of these things that started welling up in my heart and in my mind. And at that time, when we had our little boy, um, also had at that point a 15, 16 year old daughter uh, who was about to go to college for the first time ever, I considered my own mortality. I was, I was, I didn't matter, right? If I, if I died before that, I didn't, I didn't have a family and wasn't taking care of anybody, but I realized very quickly, um, had to put a child through college in a couple years and also had to live for at least 18 more to, to put another one through. <laughs> and, and, um, and those thoughts came into my mind of, um, you, you mentioned existential fears, right? Like, am I going to wake up tomorrow morning? Um, what's going to happen tonight? What's, if I go on this work trip, um, am I coming back? Right. Um, because I got to a point in my life where with a wife and a, a 16 year old daughter and a, in a, in a newborn son. Um, I love these, um, love my family so much that I didn't, I didn't want to leave them. And, um, our son at, at that point, I start to, I start to feel a little bit of anxiety similar to you, Peter had a very, very, um, and still do have a very stressful job, um, that I, that I couldn't put in its right place. So when a, a client would call on Saturday night, New Year's Eve at 11 o'clock, I'd respond to him. Right. And I'd put uh, put my family to bed and my wife would go to bed and I'd jump back on the computer and work till 2 a.m. and get back up in seven at seven and do it again. And I'd be home by six thirty or seven, have dinner, but then I would do it again the next night. And I just just wore down. And um, our our daughter was uh, at that point, our daughter was a senior and our our son, I've got to do a little bit of math here, was um, he was six is that right? Six months old? I think six months old. And one night, um, my wife turned over to me in bed and said, um, Hey Zach, um, I'm pregnant. And I said, no, you're not. And I rolled back over. You can imagine that didn't get received very well, right? (laughs) She tapped me on the shoulder two minutes later and she said, don't, don't respond to me like that. I'm, I'm pregnant. And at that point I was like, um, all right, I'm about to put one through college got a lot going on at work, have a, have a six month old who hasn't slept more than like four hours in six months at one time. And we've got another one coming 
and um, everything just kind of like fell apart at that point. Mm -hmm. I would wake up in the couple times I would wake up in the middle of the night and just be in sheer panic and wake up and have to pace and breathe and pray um, to get my heart to calm down. And I went into the doctor and he said, you're fine, man. Like you got a little bit of high blood pressure. Let's get you on some medicine. Um, and then we, uh, we were uh, very blessed to have our, our daughter a little over a year ago. And the, the day we had our daughter, my wife had our daughter. I was there supporting her, but that was fully my wife. Um, <laughs> she, I did, she did most of the work you're saying? Yes, she did all of the work. I, um, I felt like the anxiety come out of me, I felt like. And I'm like, that was it, right? We just had to have her. But then the next day, it just like amplified times 10. Now we've got um, now we've got a 12 month or, you know, now we've got a 15 month old and who doesn't sleep very well. We're just starting to get him to sleep. We have a newborn who doesn't sleep very well, a senior in high school going into college her freshman year, ton of fear there. And I just became a very fearful individual, feel for, fearful for, uh, my two little ones that I wasn't going to live to see him get married, feel for, fearful for, uh, my freshman in college who, um, was being a freshman in college and, and, um, you know, finally getting out and seeing the world and fearful for what was going on there. Um, fearful for my wife who, um, went to the hospital four days after we had our little baby girl with blood pressure, 195 over 120 because she, she had postpartum preeclampsia and her blood pressure was, was skyrocketing, fearful that I was going to lose her. And, and so my, my life just became, surrounded in fear and um and things I, I didn't address anything at that point but things kind of kind of got under control a little bit but I would notice I would notice in meetings I would feel like the the room is closing in on me and I'm normally a very uh, social and talkative and uh individual at, at work in meetings and I would just kind of like where's the door when how can I get out of here <laughs> Uh, which is just so weird, right? Never, never felt like I felt that, and um, got got things under control with my wife from a health standpoint. And um, yeah, it was probably like three three months ago. Um, I think I, at that point, I would say I had like a general hum of anxiety that I didn't acknowledge or recognize. Continue to just stuff it. And I was working in my mother-in-law's yard and, and said, hey, babe, I got to go. I got to go to our house, which is five minutes down the road and um, and get something. It was 95 degrees out. It was warm. So I went, I drove three minutes uh, towards our house. And at that point, I could not breathe, felt like uh, my chest was caving in and was um, thought I was having a heart attack. And called my wife and she didn't answer and called my wife again and she didn't answer and I pulled over and I can't breathe. Got a hold of my mother-in-law who gave the phone to my wife and she calmed me down. We got back to my mother-in-law's house. I didn't even get the tool that I was going for at the house. Got back at that point and um, it was in the car when it happened and I got back there. Things got settled down. Um, you know, look at my heart rate, look at my blood pressure. That becomes like an issue in my life moving forward, what my heart rate is and my blood pressure and, um, and, you know, get settled down and go home. Well, the next day I've, I've got to make a trip to home Depot and I get in the car and I get two minutes down the road and the same exact, exact thing happens to me. And I don't get to home Depot. I have to turn around and come home to calm down. And I got this fear of driving by myself because I thought that I was going to have a heart attack while I was driving. And it took at that point, I looked at my wife and I said, I have to work. We have to take kids places. I have to go to the grocery. Mm -hmm. I can't just sit here like a hermit in my house. And babe, you do everything, right? Like I, this life can't be like this. Mm -hmm. So we actually got a, got a doctor's appointment, went and met with a doctor. They checked, checked vitals, checked heart, checked blood pressure, all those things. And when I got to the doctor, my wife was at a meeting and she met me there. I felt like I was crawling out of my skin. I couldn't stand in the lobby. I had to go outside just to breathe until my wife got there, calmed down. We got into the doctor's into the doctor's office, and I felt like the room was two by two. Mm -hmm. And I just get me out of here. Mm -hmm. And he and he looked at me and he said, "You look you look great." And I said, "What do you mean? I feel horrible. <laughs> I feel I feel like I'm gonna pass mm -hmm. out." And he said, "He said, well, um, 
how about this? Let's let, you know, um, thanks for coming in. Let's, let's get you on a, a little, a little bit of, a, you know, a slight, a slight anti depression medicine. Um, and you know, um, let's get kind of your body working and reworking itself so that those neurotransmitters and the things that we're going to learn about in the next episode so that they start firing a little bit more and recharging. Um, and, and have you thought about quitting your job? And I said, no, I can't, I can't, I can't quit my job. He said, well, I think you and your wife need to consider some changes. Um, there's a lot of the things that are stressful right now in life and you can't quit being a dad. You wow. You the doc, your doctor, the first time you talked to him about it, he said, he said that. Wow. He said, I think, I think you and your wife need to, need to go, um, need to go just kind of think about, think about life a little bit. And I, um, I'm going to give you a pill that, you know, is just kind of like slow acting. But if you feel a panic attack coming on, I'm going to give you this other one. I said, is it addictive? I don't want anything to do with it. He said, it's not. He said, but it will take the edge off and it will calm you down within a matter of 10 minutes. And I said, Doc, I do not want to take that. He said, you're going to need it. Hmm. Um, and so so got got going. On, you know, just talked to my wife a lot, a lot at this point. And um, she said, Zach, if you need to quit your job, like we'll figure something else out, right? If it's your job, um, but I would love for you to be home more. I would love for you to be present more. Um, so, so a lot's a lot's changed since then. Um, I do feel like the the um, the serotonin reuptake inhibitor, the the, the slight anti depression medicine, has kind of helped me reset and take that edge off a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I did. You utilize that fast acting one at one point and it helped. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I try to to look forward into what's going on and project if things are going to come on and try, you know. But I also I also always have one of those pills if I'm driving, right? It'd be as like a safety blanket. Mm-hmm. You know, you and I have talked about this a safety blanket. And um, but I can proudly say uh, that next Monday I, I drove and I was skittish the whole way down to downtown Salt Lake, mm-hmm. but. One thing that I also learned um, that cognitively, if we're anxious about something and panic over something, one of the one of the best ways is to force yourself to do it. And the more you rewire your brain to and have more positive experiences doing that thing that causes you anxiety, the more you're going to remember those positive things instead of that one time that you panicked or that three those three times that you panicked. And so, every morning I drive to work, and every every evening I drive home from work, and there are days where it's a little bit tough, you know, um, but that's where my relationships with friends and family have gotten stronger because I use that to connect to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there was definitely a time where I felt like, is, is life ever going to be normal? Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, and I, there's so much overlap for both of you guys, but Zach, especially for you, because I remember when I first had panic attacks completely out of the blue, just like you guys. Um, well, again, at the time, it felt like it was out of the blue. But but just like in your story, as I look back, once I sort of put everything on the table and examined my life, I realized it wasn't out of the blue. Um, I, I just didn't recognize it creeping up on me. And there might be people listening right now saying, "That's that sounds like my story. I remember how encouraged I was to hear that I wasn't alone. It was an encouragement to hear stories like your stories, to know that this is normal. This isn't totally unusual. This is normal. It's actually normal for type A guys. It's, you know, we're all executive type guys and it's normal for, for guys like us. You have a lot of, a lot of, you know, um, responsibility at work, managing lots of people. Uh, you feel like the weight of the world's on your shoulders. That's a, that's a perfect recipe for what we've all experienced. And, uh, and so what we're going to do next time guys is share, a little bit about what we've learned about it from a physiological point of view, because some of this, and we're going to talk later in the series about some of the solutions, but I know for all of us, it was important for us to understand what's actually going on here. Why, why is this happening to me? Why does it feel like a heart, a heart attack for you, Zach, or for me, it was claustrophobia. What, what is that all about? And I think it's helpful to have a basic understanding of what's going on physiologically, the sort of the anatomy of anxiety. That's what we're going to talk about next time. Now, none of us, we're not doctors, right? So <laughs> we're, not, we're not claiming to have any professional approach to this. But I, I do think that as, as we've learned 
sort of what's happening. It helps you to sort of put in place an action plan. And Peter, one of the things you'll help us with in a couple of weeks is when we talk about actually working the steps. Now, if that sounds like an AA kind of thing, it is. It's an AA, you know, if you have an addiction, you have to work the steps. And really, anxiety is similar to that. I think anxiety takes a lot of the same, requires a lot of the same stuff, like being honest about what's going on, recognizing there's a higher power that can help you and you can't help yourself ultimately. There are some habits that you need to change and we're going to get into all that next week. But I want to encourage those who are listening. You know, all of these conversations we're having are not just about you listening to it in the car ride to work. It's really about you sitting down with a men's group at church or with a mentor one-on-one and talking about it, making sure that you do what we did just now in this episode. Be honest. Even if you've never been honest with anyone at work or with your spouse or or even friends in your life, be find someone in your life to be honest with because that's really the first step toward victory over anxiety. Now to find discussion questions to have these conversations, you can find it all at pursuegod.org forward slash men. You'll find this series on anxiety just for men in the library. And join us next week as we talk about part two of the series. <laughs>